Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer and artist Jenny O'Dell. Jenny's first book, How to Do Nothing, was published back in 2019, but it really became a fixture in 2020 as COVID pushed most people into quarantine. It was in this period that a whole lot of people took solace in Odell's impassioned plea to disconnect from the attention economy in favor of quiet reflection. But in the aftermath of her New York Times bestseller, a recurring question emerged. What if you don't have time to spend doing nothing? Odell, who lives and works out of Oakland, California, took the question to heart, so much so that she dedicated the following years to answering that prompt. The result is her new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. In it, she investigates the capitalistic forces behind the nine-to-five workday and how our taxing relationship to time is inextricably linked to social inequities, the climate crisis, and the kind of fatalism that seems inescapable in 2023. And you know, that last part is really why I wanted to sit with Jenny in this moment, to beat back against that fatalism as we mark three years since the start of the pandemic and continue as a society to move forward from it. And so we discuss all of that in today's conversation, but we also talk about the recent regulation of social media in states like Utah, 
what it's like to go back into the office in this precarious economy, our culture of self-optimization and productivity bros, and then, finally, some useful exercises she employs to experience time as it unfolds, moment by moment. And with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with writer and artist Jenny O'Dell. Jenny O'Dell, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. There are so many places to begin, but I think we have to start with this moment in time because just last week, Utah became the first state to enact laws limiting how children use social media. These new measures signed by the governor will require parental consent before kids can sign up for Instagram or Twitter. Now, whether it was a coincidence or not, this law was signed on the same day TikTok CEO testified before Congress about, among other things, TikTok's effects on teenagers' mental health. As someone who was sounding the alarm about social media in your first book, How to Do Nothing, and someone who's also spent years at Stanford teaching young adults, what do you make of these recent developments? I mean, it seems to me like it's just an ongoing recognition of how nefarious these technologies can be. Having taught college students for many years, I also know that there are ways that these technologies are used that are that help people stay connected and that they use creatively. And so I always have to kind of give that caveat. But it is true that, that they are commercial social media platforms that are designed very carefully to keep you on them as much as possible. And I think the thing that I worry about the most still that I was worried about and how to do nothing that I'm so worried about now, especially as I'm thinking more about time um, in the second book, is what that does to our sense of time, both in the everyday, like sort of the feeling that you never have enough time or that you can't have a train of thought that's a certain length, but also on a longer, more collective scale, I think it sort of leads to a kind of amnesia, like a historical amnesia. Like there's just always something new. There's this idea that there's always something new. There's something new today. There's something new the next day. And a lot of the problems that we're facing play out on much longer timescales and require us to think on longer timescales. So that's, I guess I, you know, I'm always heartened when there are recognitions of that sort of like public discussions about the safety of those platforms. I have to say on the surface, this government regulation, at least for now, reads as being rooted less in concern for children, but power over them. And of course, with that, their time, which is an idea that you're unpacking throughout your new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Ironically, I'm going to quote a tweet you had around the announcement of the book last fall. You said, Time was on my mind even before I wrote How to Do Nothing, but became more pressing afterward, when one of the most common responses I heard from readers was, I would love to do nothing, but what if I don't have the time? This question led me to the relationship of time to power. And so, in 2023, where we have a precarious economy, rising inflation, and stagnant wages. How are you thinking about that relationship of time to power in this moment? I just think it's important. I mean, it's always been important, but it's especially important now, I think, to recognize that when people say something like, I don't have enough time, which sounds quantitative, right? Like, I don't have enough hours in the day, that often what that actually means is I don't have power. Like, I don't have power over my circumstances. I don't have power with regard to my boss or 
to other people in a hierarchy. And so that question or that feeling of not having enough time is kind of, to me, inextricable from things like wages and salary and whose time is literally numerically worth what, but also kind of more subtle shades of that where it's like, you know, whose time is considered more disposable. So who, you know, what kinds of jobs involve people having to sort of like speed up or slow down to line up with other people, right? So like, I just think that that's important as a kind of counter to the idea of individualist time management in which your only task is to sort of take the time or the amount of control that you do have and kind of squeeze it harder so that you have these more hours in the day. I just don't think, you know, maybe locally that could help someone out a little bit. But really, if we're talking about giving more people more time, it would have to be something more collective and structural. You know, that question readers had around your first book about how to do less when they don't have time to do so. In many ways, the conditions that created that question have only been exacerbated by the last few years, which, as you write, rendered time strange for so many people by upending its usual social and economic contours. You continue by writing, if anything good can come out of this experience, perhaps it is an expansion upon doubt. Simply as a gap in the known, doubt can be the emergency exit that leads somewhere else. What do you mean by that exactly? I think I'm just talking about an interruption, which we're all, I think, familiar with, both on a small scale and a large. So this is kind of a silly example, but I remember years ago, I was on my laptop doing something, probably reading something I didn't even want to be reading. I was just really like... Is that common for you? Well, not not so much anymore, but this was a really long time ago. And um, <laughs> for some reason, my laptop just shut off. I, I don't know what happened. And I remember just kind of like sitting there and, and becoming suddenly very aware of the rest of my room. And the fact that I did not want to be looking at what I was looking at. And I was like, God, wouldn't it be great if my laptop just periodically turned off like all the time, right? I mean, so that's like a really small example. But then I think on the larger end, you have things like, you know, people will often have stories in their lives of like, you know, I was at this job and I, I wasn't happy. And then like something happened, right? And sometimes it's something really, you know, tragic, right? You experience loss or you just experience something really unexpected. It creates this break in which you you sort of look, again, you sort of look around, you're like, I don't want to be here. Or there's something about this that I've been taking for granted that I don't want to take for granted. And then it changes your relationship to that situation. It's like you can see the contours of it instead of just kind of being in it. You know, before the pandemic, if you had told someone, isn't it weird that we have, you know, seven day weeks and there's a nine to five and you're expected to commute and and people might at that, at that time been more likely to say like, yeah, well, but that's just like how it is, right? That's that's how I organize my life. And then, you know, not that long after the pandemic started, a lot of people weren't doing that or they were questioning it. Like I thought it was really interesting when people who were working from home were asked to go back into the office, how much resistance there was to that because people had seen that it didn't have to be that way. Well, before we attempt to take that emergency exit, that I think you're trying to offer in this book, it may be helpful to understand what exactly we're looking to leave behind. Like you said, since the pandemic, a lot of people couldn't go into the office. And in that time, we saw an increase in surveillance and control through employee tracking systems like Time Doctor, TerraMind, and, and Hubstaff, all of which aim to monitor and then eventually increase productivity. But to better understand how we came to be organized for profit, I want to go back to Frederick Winslow Taylor's 1911 book, Principles of Scientific Management. Can you explain who Taylor was and why he feels especially prescient today? 
Yeah. So Taylor is someone that you can sort of think of as like an early management guru is maybe how he would be classified now. My favorite kind of guru, by the way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, his sort of goal in studying work, I mean, he came out of an industrial context um, and was looking at industrial work in factories, was basically how can we make this work go faster by systematizing it, breaking it up into smaller and smaller tasks. And I think importantly in that, kind of taking more of the knowledge away from the workers. There's kind of like a, a way of doing things, right, that someone who actually does a job knows. What do you mean by that exactly? You know, if you think about the difference between, let's say, like a craftsperson who, I don't know, I'm thinking of like making shoes or something, right? Like it's kind of a whole process and a lot of those parts go together in a really intuitive way versus someone on an assembly line who's doing one thing over and over again, like putting a part into another part mm -hmm. or putting a couple of parts into another part and doing it as quickly as they can. I mentioned in that chapter, the Charlie Chaplin film from the 30s, Modern Times. I think that's kind of like the image that um, that sort of Taylor brings up for a lot of folks. It's like someone who's just frantically trying to keep up on the on the assembly line, the assembly line being designed in order to have all of these people doing these rote tasks and sort of the only dis the only leeway they have there is like, can you go faster or slower, right? Like, it's not like, how are you doing it? He wanted each of these bits to take as little time as possible so that the whole thing goes faster so that you make more profit, right? And I think that's just an early example of the ways in which innovations in time measurement or just the idea of measuring time is very much tied up with a goal. And the goal is to make more money. So it's not just, you know, because it's neat or something, right? It's because there's a very specific economic goal there. In looking at this history, you write about how there's an attempt to move Taylor's principles from the factory into the mind in a 1925 book called Increasing Personal Efficiency. Do you think its author, psychologist Donald Laird, is really a precursor to this trend of self-optimization? I guess what I'm asking is, is Donald Laird the first productivity bro? <laughs> um... He's definitely an early one. And yeah, productivity bro is that term that I use to describe like contemporary people who make videos about crushing your morning and making a power smoothie and all that, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. We'll get to one of those in a second. But I actually, I think that even earlier than that, I mentioned in that chapter, the, the founder of eugenics, who is uh, Francis Galton, right? I think you see in, in eugenics, like this early idea of like the, the human being as a machine that can go faster, right? It can be more powerful, it can be faster, and it can be hyper-efficient. That idea you see get carried forward into things like increasing personal efficiency. I mean, Donald Laird was a really big, open admirer of Taylor. He definitely fetishized the idea of efficiency. And he also refers to eugenics. It's a, It would be very familiar to people now, right, who are familiar with these with the productivity bros, this language of you can become a machine and you can make yourself run better, faster, more efficiently. When revisiting that book that's nearly 100 years old, did you find the similarities in philosophy and language that we see now? Did you find that frightening? Did you find it funny? What did you make of it? I mostly found it funny. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember like laughing out loud in the library when I was reading it. I mean, part of the reason it's funny is because I think when you're looking at something from the early 20th century, it's long ago enough that you can see the rhetoric from the outside. Does that make sense? Like it's so, it has a lot of like boosterism in it, I guess. That's a lot easier to sort of see and make fun of now because it's so old, 
versus like, I think when you look at contemporary media around you, it's like, yeah, you might like roll your eyes a little bit, but it's, it feels so like close and so immediate. You don't really have that kind of removal. But there's also something I think like funny about the idea of a rhetoric recurring over and over again, especially when it's always talked about as being really new, right? Like the 10 new ways to, you know, crush your morning. And it's like, oh, people have been talking about this for a really long time for, for very similar reasons. So in the intervening 100 years since the publication of Taylor's book, there's this whole industry filled with essentially time study men, people we keep referring to as productivity bros. For those unfamiliar, I thought we'd take a look at an example together. Here's a clip from a very popular productivity bro time study man named Ed Milet. Oh, I love this guy. <laughs> okay, so you know this guy. Yeah, this, this is unreal, but very real guy. Okay, here we go. My day is 6 a.m. to noon, and I'm not crazy. You're crazy for thinking it takes 24 hours, just like some dude in a cave did 300 years ago. My second day starts at noon and goes till 6 p.m. That's day two. And then the next day is 6 p.m. to midnight. What I've done now is I have changed and manipulated time. I now get 21 days a week. Stack that up over a month, I'm gonna kick your butt. Stack it up over a year, you're toast. Stack it up over five years, my entire life is different than it would have been otherwise. <laughs> Thoughts? <laughs> reflections? Love it. You know, the hand motion that he does, like whenever I talk to my friends about that, that clip, like we always do the hand motion because it's it's actually such a perfect illustration of this concept that's very much from, you know, industrial time and Taylorism of like time as stuff, like a material input into a factory that you pay for. And then just like any other material in a factory, you're supposed to manipulate it, use it, right, like crush it or, you know, get value out of it. And then it's also a really great illustration of someone taking that mentality into themselves, right? So now you, now the factory manager is you, and then the factory worker is also you. You are basically taking that punitive language of like, just, you know, you need to work harder, faster, but you're just doing it to yourself. And it's also like very competitive, right? He's like talking about like, I'm going to be ahead of you. He's going to kick my butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's living 21 days in a week. <laughs> What are we doing, Jenny? <laughs> I mean, okay, but actually, in a weird way, it is ridiculous. But it is also, he is on to something, which is that this kind of like greater truth of like, I wouldn't quote him on this, but I do, you know, I do talk in the book about the fact that, you know, the idea of having 24 hours in a day is a sort of inadequate concept for thinking about how people actually experience time. And we all sort of know this from our psychological experience of time, like time stretches. Um, it can seem to go really fast. It can seem to go really slowly. Like this is just the truth of how we experience time. So, I mean, in a way you could just, there's a way of reading what he's saying as being about that. I mean, I don't think that's how he would think of it. Are you trying to tell me that some of the work of Jenny O'Dell is inspired by Ed Milet's philosophies? I was not aware of him before. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to do the yeah. fact checking. Yeah. Jenny did not watch that TikTok <laughs> before sitting down and writing these words. Yeah. Well, I think since I, I forced all of us to endure Ed Milet's <laughs> philosophy around time, why don't we hear a little bit from your book, quoting the great Barbara Adam. Okay, so this is me setting up her quote. Would it be possible not to save and spend time, but to garden it by saving, inventing, and stewarding different rhythms of life? 
And wouldn't this simply be an acknowledgement and use of the chronodiversity that already exists for all of us on some level, individually or communally? The sociologist Barbara Adam, who has written about standardized economic time, also knows that its dominance is as incomplete as it is unintuitive. Quote, tempo and intensity surround us at every level. We know that a birthday tomorrow can feel like an eternity to a little child, while a birthday one year ago can seem like only yesterday to an old person. The dormant period of winter is followed by a burst of growth in spring. Our social time, as it emerges from common usage, is inseparable from the rhythms of the earth. Complexity reigns supreme. And yet, so much of this productivity bro philosophy that is dominant in the culture seems to ignore or seems to reduce that complexity. Or it wants to. <laughs> yeah. Or the aim is, I'm going to explain how to be more productive and efficient in a TikTok video that's going to last 24 seconds. That people love, that people subscribe to. <laughs> These people have millions upon millions of, of ardent followers. And the language runs across corporate America. And so I wonder how we begin to reintroduce that complexity. Yeah, I actually don't think it's that hard because, I mean, part of what I think Barbara Adam is talking about in that quote is that we live in bodies on a planet. So like that sort of non-standardized time is very close to us all the time, even if we're ignoring it, right? Or we live in a culture that's trying to sort of keep that to the sideline. Um, but it is it is always sort of there for the taking, right? Or there for the noticing, maybe. The idea that everyone has 24 kind of fungible hours in a day, it's not a hard concept to knock down if you just simply ask someone, right? Like, okay, everyone has 24 hours in a day. Like, where are you during those hours? What resources do you have access to in those hours? Whose schedule are you on? What obligations do you have? Any of these questions, right, will like very quickly um, sort of reveal this landscape of work and obligation and hierarchies, right, that we all know, right, because that is, the, that is our day-to-day. -day. Otherwise, we wouldn't be complaining that we never have enough time. So I think there's actually ways in which you can just sort of appeal to someone's intuition, right, or someone's sort of lived experience to just refute this idea of the, of the 24 hours. At the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that part of the reason that's so seductive that idea of like, I can help, I can give you like two days in one, right? Is because people feel they have so little control. And in reality, that, that may be true, right? An individual person who's not, say, part of a union or doesn't have like any, any other individuals to link up with to push back on any of these structures, that will seem seductive, right? Like someone telling you, I can like make it so that you can fix your own problem all by yourself. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that, right? <laughs> no one wants to feel like they don't have power. And so I think to me, that sort of explains why that kind of advice has always been really interesting to people. And I sort of I don't fault someone for going to that. Right. Because everyone is just trying to make it. I kind of put the blame more on that on the framework itself of like you are responsible for improving your own lot versus actually we would need to do something beyond the individual in order for everyone in that sort of collective to have more time, more control of their time. I think you hit on something I really want to talk about, which is I think the reason books like Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek or Laura Vanderkam's 168 Hours, You Have More Time Than You Think, are extremely popular are because they do offer the promise of control, like you said, the power over potentially actualizing your dreams. But I think what those books seem to miss, and I think what you're hinting at, is that it doesn't ask the question, but at what cost? A lot of these books often say, 
to outsource tasks you don't like and identify your core competencies. You write, it is great advice to seek your dream job, but in many of these books, the implied answer to the question, who will do the low wage work, is that it doesn't matter as long as it's not you. Beyond the clear class implications here, how are you thinking about the racial dynamics implicit in this question? It's a very simple demonstration of like an uneven playing field, right? So one of the problems with saying 24 hours in a day isn't just that some people have, you know, higher wages or higher salaries. It's that people in certain demographics, their time is typically not valued as much. So women, people of color, even outside of workplace, right? Like uh, uh, women are typically expected to um, take on more childcare, household duties. They're often the default parent, right? So like if uh, something comes up, they are expected to respond in some way. Again, that's not about necessarily work or the number assigned to your time, like in terms of a wage. So I think it's just important to be aware of this kind of, it's almost like a topography or a landscape of power relationships that involve different hierarchies. And that idea of the 24 hours, everyone having 24 hours in the day is obviously distorted by that, right? Or it's informed by that, like who you are and what place you occupy in those relationships is going to determine how much control you have over your time and how it feels to you. And so I think potentially for someone who's in a really disadvantaged position, like someone saying everyone has 24 hours in a day could be like the most insulting thing to hear. I think to help wade through these larger racial implications, would you mind reading a passage from the book? It comes at the top of page 63. Oh, yeah, yeah. Likewise, a true political understanding of time cannot be afraid to address the most general, widespread, and entrenched structures of power. For example, in a talk called The Racial Politics of Time, author, activist, and cultural critic Brittany Cooper opens with the provocation that, quote, white people own time. This has as much to do with how the colonized of the world are seen as existing outside history as it does with the fact that white people overwhelmingly set the pace of the workday and dictate the worth of everyone else's time. Plus, in many cases, you don't have to buy someone's time in order to waste it. As if in direct rebuke to Bennett, that's someone who wrote a a book about the 24 hours idea, uh, Bennett's unstealable 24 hours, Cooper quotes Ta-Nehisi Coates, quote, the defining feature of being drafted into the Black race is the inescapable robbery of time. In place of the equal hours myth, Cooper has this suggestion, quote, no, we don't all get equal time, but we can decide that the time we do get is just and free. We can stop making your zip code the primary determinant of your lifespan. We can stop stealing learning time from Black children through excessive use of suspensions and expulsions. We can stop stealing time from Black people through long periods of incarceration for nonviolent crimes. The police can stop stealing time in Black lives through use of excessive force. If time is simply life, then, as Cooper makes clear, the question of time management boils down to a question about who controls whose lives. This is an example of the contrast Sarah Sharma highlights between the political understanding of time and the dream of mastering our individual time units. The further question of what time is, an issue of language, is one I will come back to in chapter six. My point for now is simpler. Only by acknowledging the real contexts in which experiences of time play out can we arrive at a different notion of time management, one that doesn't simply reproduce a cruel game. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think like, 
it's interesting because in both with this book and the book before, I I have gotten you know feedback where like people are sort of frustrated that there isn't a simple answer, right? Like I, I don't provide a simple like what what should we do? And I think like this this section in particular shows that the reason there isn't a simple answer is because something as seemingly simple as why don't I have enough hours in the day actually ties into these much much bigger longer historical patterns that, you know, we shouldn't feel that they're so entrenched that we can't change them, right? I'm just saying this as like, I think it's important to have respect for the complexity of the problem that like, you know, if only it were so simple as I have 24 hours in a day and you tease them better, right? But like the truth just is that it leads into these other questions and we should not be afraid to go there. To break past this cruel game, you have some ideas and practices I really liked. Can we start with this term infraordinary, which you found in a 1973 essay called Approaches to What? What, what is infraordinary? So infraordinary means something that's so ordinary you kind of can't notice it, right? Like those, those are often the hardest things to notice are things that are just kind of like not changing or not seemingly notable. And so actually trying to notice them is a practice that one has to cultivate. The example that I always think of is like going on an architectural walking tour of somewhere that you think you're familiar with where there's like there could be a building that you've walked past every day and then there's actually all of these details about it or historical context that you just need someone else to point out for you or you need to be looking for it in the first place. In that essay, uh, An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris, can you explain what that was and what he was trying to do? Yeah, it was a piece where George Perec, the writer, was going to the same place in Paris and sitting in different locations, but basically in the same general area trying to notice the infraordinary. So he mentions at the outset things that people typically do notice there, like landmarks and things like that. And then he sort of goes on to say, I'm, I want to notice the things that aren't that, like what happens when nothing happens is how he puts it. So the form that the text takes on is just like a listing out of things that are happening. A kid walks by, drops his ice cream, the bus goes by, and he's kind of like holding his attention constant and just seeing whatever passes through that. It ends up being sort of an expression of time, right? Because that's ultimately what shows up when you pay attention to one spot for a duration. Is that something you've been doing lately? I've done that for a long time. I probably was doing something like that before I even knew about that book. And part of that is maybe in part because I've, you know, I've lived in the same place for a while. I go to the same places a lot. And so I think when you do that um, or you have really familiar routes, for example, that you kind of do a version of that, like informally. I used to also have my students do an exercise that was based on specifically on George Perec's writing, where they would go outside of the classroom and like spend 15 minutes and write down everything that happened. But yeah, I kind of feel like I do it all the time. Like if I'm waiting for the bus or just any period of time where I have the ability to pay attention to some kind of like area. There was an interesting shift when you gave that coursework to your students in the pandemic. What was that? When I was teaching during the pandemic, it was remote. So my students were typically either at home or, you know, like living with friends somewhere off campus. They obviously were not able to do the normal assignment. And the way that I always had ended that assignment was that we would talk about what we had noticed afterward, after they had done the exercise. And when we were discussing that this time around, it became clear that a lot of them had noticed birds, in part because they were in backyards and things like that, but also because there just wasn't a lot else going on. Like if they were on campus, they would see, you know, people and like things happening and cars and all that. And so they were noticing birds and sort of like trees, like more sort of non-human elements 
Another exercise and observation you have, especially cultivated in the pandemic, is this unfreezing something in time, which sounds a lot like the Vonnegut unstuck in time line, but I think means something completely different. Yeah. So unfreezing something in time, that was just kind of a phrase that I started using to describe paying attention to something pretty specific. So there is actually a part of the George Perec book where he actually narrows his scope even further to like a spot on the sidewalk. And he's talking about things that are coming in and out of his spot on the sidewalk. And I think that would be an example to me of unfreezing something in time. It's like focusing your attention on one area or entity. And in so doing, you start to notice the changes in it. And then as you notice the changes in it, you realize that it's not sort of just there. (laughs) And for me, the biggest or the most significant experience I had of that during the pandemic was a specific tree that I walked past almost every day that happens to be on a really odd schedule compared to other trees because it goes dormant in the summer. And also because when it starts to have leaves again in January or so, once that starts happening, everything happens really fast. So it's an example of that kind of like, it's always changing, but sometimes the changes are very slow and other times they're very fast. Sometimes they're really dramatic. Sometimes they're hard to notice. But just the fact of me walking past it so often, it kind of turned into almost like a clock for me, its own clock. And so it it became, you know, unfrozen just in the fact of me being familiar with it and paying attention to it and have so many photos of this tree on my phone, you know. Um, And so I'm, it's, about as far as it could be from the idea of like a tree that's just there. I like the idea of someone going through your phone and being like, wow, (laughs) she really likes this tree. Yeah, well, they would be right. (laughs) We'll be right back after a quick break. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? 
by using a combination of technologies. The Cellular Vehicle to Everything Network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It sounds like you implemented these ideas into your daily routine a long time ago. Like you said, someone that was always observing and always taking in. But I want to talk about routine to quote sociologist Richard Sennett. He says, it can demean, but it can also protect. Routine can decompose labor, but it can also compose a life. I wonder, how are you thinking about routine in your life, especially in the aftermath of this pandemic? I think routine is something that obviously, you know, the Taylorists of the world love routine, right? And I think part of the reason I included that quote from Richard Sennett is this, it's an acknowledgement that it doesn't have to be something punitive. Um, like a routine can just be a tool or a set of tools that you use to accomplish something that you want to accomplish. Hopefully that's something that you want to accomplish, not <laughs> someone else wants you to accomplish. But I just think of it as a way of kind of like, structuring time, I think later on in that passage, I talk about a botanical garden and how like a botanical garden has all of these different sections that feel different, that someone made that decision to put different things in different places to over to achieve some sort of overall effect. So that's kind of how I think about routine is like, you know, whatever it is that I'm trying to do at that particular time in my life, I will try to find a routine that is helpful for that. But once I'm no longer trying to do that thing. I feel like the routine should be disposable, if that makes sense. Um, Because I think there are ways in which like the routine can get away from you or it can kind of like become the primary thing. What do you mean by that? You know, like like people are like, oh, I got to get my 10,000 steps. It's probably good to be walking. It's healthy. But like there is a risk that you would be like, you know, despondent if you didn't get your 10,000 steps that day. That you're not living up to the routine. Yeah. Whereas like the routine was actually supposed to serve you in the first place. I mean, the other example that I think of is I've been using Duolingo to learn Spanish and Duolingo has a lot of persuasive design in it. So much guilt in that design. Yeah. And it's got like the leaderboards and the streaks and anyway, but it's actually pretty effective at teaching Spanish. So I've been using it and sometimes 
I will find myself starting to like tip over into that like if I don't do more Duolingo today, I won't be, I won't get to the next league in the leaderboards. And then I remember having that thought like on a walk and thinking that I needed to like walk back, like I need to walk faster to get home so I can do this. And it was like the most beautiful day and I was having a really nice walk. And I was like, wait, what was my original goal? My original goal was to learn Spanish. I am learning Spanish. So like the rest of that is irrelevant, but it's an example of how something that you originally set up to get closer to something that you wanted to do or to learn can kind of flip to where you feel like you're trying to keep up with it. So I always try to think of routine as something as like a, yeah, like a very disposable tool. Like I will create or a routine will like emerge that works for say, like researching for a book, but then maybe you're not researching anymore. You're writing. So now you have to change it. Now you're no longer writing. So you have to change it again. You said before that often routine is associated with self-worth in a Protestant work ethic kind of way. Yeah, I mean, that's something that was definitely informing things like increasing personal efficiency. The idea that working in a very regimented and regular way is morally good. Um, That's definitely the idea from the Protestant work ethic. Again, I mean, I think you you see the same thing with that. There's There's nothing per se wrong with putting a lot of effort into something that you want. It's when ideas about regularity and efficiency themselves become kind of fetishized or become equated with a moral value in this case. I feel like that's when you start to get the this kind of self-surveilling or the like feelings of guilt or I should work harder or faster that are not really part of maybe what you originally set out to do. And embedded in this conversation about routine, I think, is the idea of work-life balance, which has been discussed and written about kind of ad nauseum, especially as the divisions between the two blurred by email, Slack, Zoom, which we're using right now. These work conditions didn't suddenly emerge, though. I want to play a clip. It's from a 1967 news report from Walter Cronkite, where he's predicting what the home office of the 21st century may look like. This is where a man might spend most of his time in the home of the 21st century. This equipment here will allow him to carry on normal business activities without ever going to an office away from home. This console provides a summary of news relayed by satellite from all over the world. Now, to get a newspaper copy for permanent reference, I just turn this button. And out it comes. When I've finished catching up on the news, I might uh, check the latest weather. This same screen can give me the latest report on the stocks I might own. A telephone is this instrument here, a mock-up of a possible future telephone. This would be the mouthpiece. Now, if I want to see the people I'm talking with, I just turn the button and there they are. Over here, as I work on this screen, I can keep in touch with other rooms of the house through a closed-circuit television system. With equipment like this in the home of the future, we may not have to go to work. The work would come to us. That's amazing. (laughs) What do you make of that? It reminds me a lot of this ad that I came across. I mean, it's from later. I think it's from the 90s that uh, was actually part of the original talk that I gave for How to Do Nothing at the conference that I gave that talk at. I had a bunch of slides, and one of them was this magazine ad from Byte Magazine which was like an early hobbyist computing magazine. But it's a very similar vibe. It's like a relaxed guy sitting at his desk and 
there's a graph on his computer screen of productivity going up, of course. And he has a sandwich and a little thing of milk, which I thought was funny, but he was like drinking out of a tiny carton of milk. But the language is very similar. It's like, what if, you know, you could have done this much work before 10 a.m. without even having left your home? And it reads very differently now, I think. Well, that's what I was thinking of. That, that line that he has at the end, with equipment like this and the home of the future, we may not have to go to work. The work would come to us. And Cronkite delivers that with a kind of enthusiasm about what the future could be. But now, having lived in the future he predicted, it sounds almost ominous. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what we've seen over and over again is that a piece of technology that we know is going to change work does change work, but either doesn't do it in the way that we thought it would or in doing so, in changing things, it also kind of rearranges the sort of landscape of work, right? Um, Or the shape of work in ways that might actually have the opposite effect. So we now know that if the work can come to you at any time, it means that you could also be expected to be working at any time. And that because of that, you might actually have to do more work. Mm. (laughs) So, right. It's like, yeah, it got easier and faster, but that also saying that I quote somewhere in the book, like the only reward for working quickly is more work. If we are that predictable, like if a news report from 56 years ago could map out where we were headed and where we find ourselves now, what is the path do you think to breaking this cycle, to moving past what Megan Garber in The Atlantic calls a ceaseless purgatory? We know what will happen because it is already happening, she writes. The lakes are drying, the ice is melting, the winds are howling. Here we are, though, engaged in business as usual. Does this seem possible to you to break through this after writing this book? I have to believe that, otherwise I probably wouldn't have written it. Again, I think this is what's frustrating to some people, is like a question about time and not having enough time, which feels like a very individual and personal experience, actually is like an expression of the fact that... (laughs) Like we have to sell our time, right? Like most people have to sell their time. Some people have to sell it for not very much. And as long as that's true, like these problems will persist. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm pretty briefly mentioned, like UBI, for example, would be something structural that would actually substantively change some people's relationship to their time because they wouldn't have to sell it as much. But there's also things like fair work week laws, you know, paid leave. Like we've been aware of these possibilities. Other countries have them. Some of the things I feel like are low-hanging fruit, maybe not low-hanging fruit in terms of like getting that actually passed. There would be a lot of opposition to that. But there are multiple levels that you could try to address, but they're all in the direction of something collective and systemic. And that's challenging. I think it's just important to acknowledge the challenge, but not sort of like throw up one's hands either. This comes back to a quote you have that I just have been thinking about all week because it seems to really capture what it's like to live and work in 2023. You said, I'm really scared of the feeling of inhabiting a world that feels inert and you have nothing to do with it and you're just there for a while and then you go away like that. That feeling scares me. That inertia you're alluding to, I guess I'm thinking about the ways in which you fight back against it. 
A lot of my writing in this book and in How to Do Nothing was motivated by like trying to think across from the individual to the systemic, right? Like what is my place in history and what is my place in these structures? And I think what I was just talking about, that's obviously more on the structural side of things. But I think there's also for the individual, I think what I was trying to do in this book was recover a sense of agency in a person, right? Like when they're thinking about the future, because I think there's so much of the way the future is talked about right now. And also just the sort of like wear and tear of of life, right? Like daily life, where time feels like a linear timeline that's kind of like plodding forward towards disaster and that there's not really anything to be done there, right? Like I, I think there's a very common feeling of like, I'm just going to live out my little life while this thing is happening, right? And it doesn't really have anything to do with me and I don't have anything to do with it. And that to me feels very associated with the Kronos version of time in in the Kronos versus Kairos contrast that I talk about, those both being words um, in ancient Greek for time. So Kronos is that kind of like uniform, standardized timeline kind of time. And then Kairos is the more I think of like an earthquake or something, right? Like a time of action, a time when things might change very quickly. And I think that there's something that happens for me anyway, when you think about time in that way, it helps you recover your own sense of agency and the idea that you are actually capable of doing things that you didn't expect. And for me, that is how I personally break out of that feeling of inertia and at least start to be able to try to imagine something else. This seems deeply rooted in what seems like your ability to return to discovery, which is the thing that we often experience or most of us remember experiencing in childhood. Yeah, definitely. I have many friends with young children at this point, and I definitely recognize that in them, the kind of feeling that you don't know what something is yet. And I think that that's one of the reasons I like spending time with children is because as adults, we aren't given that many opportunities to have that feeling. There's something about like that feeling of just trying to get through the day that is very stifling in terms of having any curiosity about any, about anything. For me, like I associate that feeling of discovery with humility because you also have to have the humility to say that you don't know, like you don't know yet or um, you thought you knew. I feel like the there's like a culture of certainty or something right now. People want to sound authoritative on things. There's like the sort of mic drop statement on Twitter, that's like, that's a very sort of popular format. And it's not as popular to say, like, I actually don't know. I don't know something like I actually need to like talk to someone and find that out. Or I would need, you know, maybe years to actually be able to answer that question, you know, um, and that like that could be an exciting feeling, not a humiliating feeling. I think the, the humbling part's right, because that feeling of discovery, it can only actually be felt once you acknowledge that there's something else to discover, that, that you're not certain, that it's not fixed. And I just want to go back to the earliest experience of you feeling that, which seems to happen in, in Cupertino, where you grow up just blocks away from where the Apple campus is now, where your mother, who used to work in tech, would push you around in a stroller to some shrubbery to grab onto leaves. When you think back on that image, what do you see? When I think of it now, it reminds me a lot of what I do as an adult, which is that I carry around this jeweler's loop to look at plants really closely. The thing that those two experiences seem to have in common to me is that, you know, when you're a baby, you obviously don't know what anything is. 
the plant is not a plant. It's just a texture. It's colors. It's like a smell. And it's a sort of whole universe in itself, right? Like, especially when you're just, your face is like up in this plant. And that's how it feels to me when I look at things with a loop is that there might've been something that previously felt like a plant, but then when you look at it through a 10X lens, you not only see things that you couldn't have seen, you know, unaided, but it very quickly starts to feel like that universe, right? Like it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole complex system in and of itself that you just needed to look at in a slightly different way in order to be able to see that. So yeah, I do think that there were a lot of things that my mom did like that, that influenced me in terms of assuming that there's probably something in front of me that's interesting all the time. And if I don't see it, then I'm just not looking right. That feels like a very clear and and obvious metaphor, maybe for what we're trying to talk about. There's a lot of writing in the book about your dreams, which you've often said come in the form as obvious metaphors trying to communicate something to me about my waking life. And a lot of this book was you say, informed by these stress dreams that you had about running out of time. Now that the book is published and you're done writing it, do you still have those dreams? And if not, what are the dreams now? I don't have them as much anymore. Maybe one very loose theme. And I remember having similar dreams when How to Do Nothing came out, is that I will find myself in a very unfamiliar environment And it's sort of neither good nor bad. Like it's intimidating in its newness, but it's also a little bit exhilarating. I had one recently where somehow I got turned into an osprey, (laughs) like the type of bird, which was exciting. But then I was also, I had to take a flight test, but I had just turned into an osprey. So that'd be like if you just got your driver's permit and they were like, you know, drive over that mountain or something. What is the metaphor there that's trying to be communicated? I think, I mean, my sort of current guess is that both books, like I think I came out the other side very different than when I went in and I had to learn a lot. When you come out the other end of something like that and you try to think about what you want to do going forward, even if it's like very vague, obviously it's going to be something that's more challenging, but it's more challenging from where you're currently standing. So it's like always this question of like, can I even do that? And then the only way to find out is if you try. I don't want to say harder, but it'll just be something else. It'll be something unfamiliar that two, three years ago, me would never have been able to imagine. You know, I guess in many ways, uh, that feeling of not knowing whether you can do something or try something new is a little bit how I felt reading the book and then finishing it on the other side, having that, that feeling of newness, which as you say, was neither intimidating or overly exciting, but something that you had to kind of like go through to get out, I suppose, if that makes any sense. It's funny, though. It's like the book has that thing, you know, when you get out of a movie theater. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know what you mean. You have to think about it for a while. That does actually touch on something that I think has become more clear to me after having written this and seeing, you know, how it's received it's clarified for me that I, one of the reasons, okay, there's two reasons I don't offer simple answers. One of them is what I already said earlier is that there aren't any. (laughs) So it would just be a lie. But the other reason is that I consider my relationship to the reader to be one of a collaborator. And I don't see my reader as a customer or a consumer. 
And so I don't see my job as, you know, giving them a package of information. I mean, in the book, I literally format it as the narrative is that the reader and I are in a car. We're in my car and we're going to these places together. We're both seeing these things together. But it's not me telling someone like how to interpret the situation. And so I think that's part of the reason why you might get to the end of this book and feel like you need to process it for a while, just like any other experience, right? Like if you go on a trip with someone and you have a lot of experiences, there's you don't just, you know, get home and can immediately go on with your life. You kind of have to think about it for a while, what it, what it means for you. Um, and some of my favorite experiences as a reader have been when I read a book and at the end, I thought that I needed to just like sit on a bench and reconsider my entire life. <laughs> so. Well, then I want to thank you for both in this conversation, but also on the page, encouraging people not to look at exactly what you're looking at, but to simply look. Jenny O'Dell, appreciate the time. Thank you so much. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. Special thanks this week to Carrie Neal and Marnie Folkman at Penguin Random House, and of course, Jenny O'Dell. You can find her new book, Saving Time, wherever you do your reading. If you'd like to hear more conversations with writers, I'd recommend our talks with Margaret Atwood, Ocean Wong, Joyce Carol Oates, Richard Powers, Naomi Klein, George Saunders, Jhumpa Lahiri, and Minjin Lee. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on social media at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy or a vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. Yes, we made a record with Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. And finally, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer, Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer, Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk, edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Paulina Suarez and Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our robust team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with actor Stephen Yun. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.